Thanks for joining me for part two of Ella Brooks' story on the Just Checking In podcast. I'm presuming, if you listen to part one, then you don't need me to do the usual intro, so we're just going to jump straight in here. If you haven't listened to part one, please go do so before you do this. This is how part two of Ella's story went. In part two of your journey, Tony, we are going to chat about the incredible work you do in men's mental health as a consultant and as the founder of Four Arm Men. Can you tell me first how Four Our Men started, why you felt inspired to do it, and the story behind the name itself? Four Our Men started quite accidentally, really, when I connected with policing, even though I had been researching and looking into men's mental health and supporting a lot of men individually, I hadn't really considered it to be something that was my life's work and that's what I wanted to dedicate my time to. But when I connected with police and... I heard how much mental health problems there were, emotional well-being, issues with organisational well-being as a whole. It really made me wake up, I suppose, to just how prevalent the issue was. And and obviously police is a very male-dominated organisation, as is the emergency services and, and military. And so you can imagine how many issues I heard about and it was the moment I wrote that and published that first piece about my first ride along men in police just started talking to me and I realized that at that point and and there are some services now that are beginning to have men's networks and what have you but there was just nothing specifically for men that was really talking about their mental and emotional well-being and so it just took probably a couple of years, maybe 18 months of of supporting dozens of men in in police and emergency services individually, that when I was furloughed for my most recent day job, I just recognised that there wasn't, whilst there were people talking about men's mental health in the workplace and in emergency services here and there, there wasn't what I considered a, a groundswell of movement and there didn't seem to be much impetus to make things happen quickly. And I'm a very impatient woman when I spot an issue I'm like okay what are we going to do to fix it what are we going to do to address it and you can imagine that in any organization but particularly public organizations have a lot of red tape lots of signatures that you need to get to get everything signed off and I realized that if I sat and waited for permission to do what I wanted to do it was going to take years and so when I was furloughed I had this really I suppose fork in the road moment where I thought I'm either going to have to walk away from from my men in emergency services work because I was getting nowhere fast or I was going to have to find another way. And so I would often say, and I, and I always do, that I call them my men. And some people agree with that and some people don't, but they are my men. I feel very protective of them. I want to fight for them. I want to give them a voice. And, and so that's really how the four our men came about. It was me always talking about my men and saying what what can we do for our men what can we do to help them and it it, it came from that really and I've sort of been going with it ever since and trying to build it up. As you went along this journey what were some of the challenges you encountered obviously you said there about kind of sign off and that administrative bureaucracy process but was there things like trust and gaining the trust of those people you worked with was there toxic masculinity you encountered kind of what can you tell me about this point? 
I think it was a mix of everything and anything, to be honest. When I first, I think I'd only written my ride along in the September and in the April I ran a coffee morning for men only in police whilst I was up in London presenting on the topic at a conference. And I had women in police and academia really come for me and say it's sexist and I was a badge bunny just looking for a police husband. And and I was really shocked by that sort of level of vitriol. And I was quite surprised by the anger. I don't get that anymore because many realise that I can balance looking after my men whilst also being a huge advocate for women. But in terms of trust, for the officers that need me, particularly for the men, that trust comes quite quickly. And I think that was because of need, because there wasn't really much else out there at the time, or at least not known nationally, even if small things were happening at service level, they saw me as a person they could speak to quite quickly. And I was outside of the organisation, so it gave them a bit of breathing space from any issues that they may encounter. So I was quite fortunate that I was pushing on an open door, really, when I wrote my first piece, and then everyone started seeing I was a men's mental health specialist. I didn't need to fight to have a voice. All the men came to me. But I would say that certainly there have been difficulties with a lot of people who don't, and and this is from all angles, you know, men, women, leaders, frontline, who don't recognise that men's mental health is very different. And I say men's mental health, and I define by sex for ease, but I recognise that male mental health is really what we're talking about here. Because a lot of women in male-dominated sectors, workplaces will take on, you know, male personalities, male traits to succeed in the organisation, rightly or wrongly. And so actually, you then have many traits that perhaps would work against men for their mental health, but also work against women, which is, I think people have now recognised that that's what I'm trying to say, that I support my men, but actually, if you understand that male mental health is different and can often present clinically different. And we're talking in how, for example, a mental illness might present itself in a man or a woman, that they appreciate that I'm saying that if you recognise male mental health, you can also help women. And so there is that balance. But I think that there has been a lot of pushback from a lot of leaders, and again, men and women, who will say perhaps, well, the majority of the organisation is men, why do they need support? Or the National Federation that supports the front line, for example, will be predominantly male. So there's been a real question of, well, if they make the majority by default, why do we need to look after them specifically? So I have faced a lot of that. And a lot of that is simply blissful ignorance about the topic and and I don't begrudge that because most of the time when I do then speak to leaders or officers when they say well why are you doing something for men only and I explain some of the statistics and some of the perspectives you can see them relax a little bit and they come down for the rafters and I explain that actually there is a real need it's well documented well researched but I think as well in terms of the organization I have received quite a bit pushback and it and it makes people really uncomfortable when I say it but being a woman trying to advocate in a male dominated and led organization does work against me very subtly because some leading men will not like the fact that as a woman I'm challenging their perspectives that's not police centered that's any organization 
that I can work with. It takes a special kind of, of leader to be able to say, actually, I didn't know that or that's a different perspective or to have their thinking challenged. And that's not to say that I've got all the answers and I don't ever tell anyone that they're wrong. I simply say, have you considered it from this perspective? But unfortunately, that doesn't always go down well. I think particularly in policing at the moment where, again, rightly or wrongly, they're quite defensive about being challenged by people outside of the organisation for a whole host of reasons. So I understand that sensitivity too, but unfortunately it does mean that progress is much slower or stalls. And that's why I just realised that I was going to have to stay parallel to the organisation in instead of trying to go specifically into police or fire or ambulance, that I need to remain outside of being a member of the Blue Light family myself. Given all we discussed in part one, Tony, you could have very easily, and with a lot of justification and understanding, had a pretty negative view of the police and men in general, I would guess, because of your experiences. But you decided to help the men in these organisations. How much inner strength did it take not to succumb to perhaps those misgivings or those experiences that you had? And did you almost have to do a bit of forgiveness in your mind as well? I think I would sort of say it was stubbornness a lot of the time. It was that I didn't want to be afraid. And I'm quite fortunate. And it sounds really messed up when I say this to people, but sometimes I feel lucky to be raped by someone I know because it means that I don't have to, in a way, fear every man I see on the street. And that doesn't mean I'm not still hypervigilant if I hear footsteps behind me, but it does mean I'm not looking at every man and thinking, are you my rapist? And it's very different because then I hear from women who have been victims of stranger rape and they'll say the opposite and say, well, actually, your experience is worse because your trust was broken. So there's perspectives on both sides. But I think for me, it was, I don't want to give in to this not fear of men but mistrust and viewing them in a negative way and as I said just now I didn't really have a choice to support my men they came to me and from the moment I wrote that first piece and I felt duty bound to honour that vulnerability and do something with it so it was never my decision to focus on emergency services and particularly police because my work around men is around all workplaces. For me, the workplace is the common denominator of all men. It's the place that you spend the most time, which is why I focus on men's mental health in all workplaces. But I think for me, I tripped and fell into this reputation with men in police. And I had so many good men talk to me about their mental health, about their emotional well-being that I got to see men's softness and and continually be reminded of men's goodness against what had happened. And I think, to be honest, if I hadn't have had that, if I hadn't have had that balance of I'm having this horrific victim care against all these incredible men who were sharing their experiences and their kindness and empathy and allowing me to talk about the investigation and what was upsetting me. It helped normalise what I was going through and to be able to say, actually, how I'm feeling is not my fault, that this victim care is not good. It's not just me being oversensitive. So they helped me even to normalise my feelings around my investigation. And then 
just to get to know them as people and to see to be reminded that they were incredibly emotionally intelligent and empathetic men in the organization and I was very fortunate to come across them that's not always been the case I've come across some horrific men in police that have very badly triggered me at times and and I have had times where I've been in tears really thinking if I have the stomach to keep going with it and to be surrounded by so many men in a male dominated sector and and continue with my work but every time I have that doubt in myself do I have the stomach to do this do I have the resolve the strength the universe or whatever sends me a little sign and that might be another man that needs my support or just says thank you so much for your work and I think that's why I keep going that's why I keep continuing with my work because my men carry me on those difficult days and so I feel duty bound to honour it back. You wrote in the book how dangerous and unhelpful the saying men are trash is, which I personally agree with. Can you explain why in your view it's harmful to the conversation around men's mental health? I think a lot of these blanket statements are really not helpful, but I think particularly the men and trash, it's just a very, it's a very negative and tainting phrase that gets put out I think too often and look there's a difference between joking about it you know a bit like how a man would say oh women are psychos and I'll laugh and I'll say okay maybe and if you're doing that within friends and within very small context then yes I can understand it to a point but when you start talking about it in general society and you start saying men are trash It just doesn't help the conversation on any level that you want to talk about mental health, emotional well-being, and just men at all. I think it just, it's so difficult to explain, but it it feels like it just suppresses the conversation. It doesn't allow men to feel like they have a voice on any aspect because it's so dismissive across a whole wide range of issues. So I I don't think it helps. As I said, I'm all about context of conversation and personal jokes that that's one thing if you're going to do that but I think we are recognizing now the power of language and language is always changing you know things that our parents used to say in the 70s you just wouldn't say anymore because as a society we've learned that it's not helpful or it's damaging or it's completely offensive or discriminatory you know we learn so I think for me the men are trash is a phrase that we need to stop using if you want to use it as a joke and within context then crack on if you think that's a joke that you can handle that your friendship group can help but I think when we're talking about wide-ranging issues and particularly if we're talking at the moment in the news you know with sexual violence and then people say oh men are trash I completely understand people's anger but it's not helpful to the discussion and if you need to bring men to the table for a discussion about any topic you know, saying men are trash, as I said, similarly to women are psychos, you're not going to get anywhere. So I think we have to be very careful with terms like this. And the same with toxic masculinity. I think it gets banded about a lot in the media and actually, and again, particularly on social media, without full context of what it is. And and I do recognise, and some people, certainly in the professional sector, will say that there's no such thing as toxic masculinity and, and it does nothing to harm men. I am of the view that it is a thing and we should use that phrase, but in very, very considered contexts and understanding of the term. Because if you say masculinity is toxic, then you're hitting 
anyone who considers themselves to be male you know whether that is a gay man whether it's a trans man whether it's your typically traditionally masculine man you are discounting issues and you're saying your perception is that men are toxic as a whole which again helps no conversation so whilst i agree with the term i think we need to be very mindful of how it's used and make sure it's defined and used in appropriate context so that we don't feel as though we're blanket dismissing men we'll come on to that question a bit later in this part of the pod tony but in the book one of the key issues that emergency workers and police face when it comes to their mental health is compassion fatigue and how that can also in turn lead to poor victim care if they're not careful Can you explain what that term is for the listeners and how it impacts emergency service workers like healthcare workers, firefighters and police officers? Yeah, so compassion fatigue is essentially when you're all out of empathy, where you've had to do lots of emotional labour to support someone. And we all know if you've had, you know, somebody that's just ranting and raving at you, one of your mates has just had a really difficult breakup and they're ranting and raving at you or they're in tears about it and you support them maybe for a couple of hours, two, three hours, and then they leave your house. And then afterwards, you'll probably feel quite heavy, you'll feel quite tired, might have a headache. And it's essentially that. But if you can imagine how many people our emergency services go to just in one shift alone, and every person, whether they're victim, patient, whatever you may call them, needs you to be that person that listens to them and is empathetic and emotionally intelligent is supporting of you if you think about how you feel on one occasion where you have to do that and you've got maybe 50 people that you come into contact with during one shift and you have to do that same level of emotional labor and give that same level of compassion every time your battery is going to be running on empty and that works with doctors as well if they're working a really really long shift obviously they're probably going to be the best version that they're going to be in the first couple of hours and by the 15th and 16th hour you may not they might be a little bit impatient they may be a little bit less empathetic a bit more blunt so it's very very difficult and and i see it from both sides because particularly in emergency services the idea is that part of that compassion is resilience you know that you can cope with difficult situations but you can't be resilient when you have no time to recover from each traumatic episode. So for me, the emergency services sector is trauma. That's all they deal with is trauma. And if they have no time to decompress after each traumatic scene or patient or victim that they support, that compassion is going to be less and less and less because they're just going to have emotional burnout. So it's really important that we do give time for emergency services workers to have that decompression, have that time out. And unfortunately, because they are public organisations and therefore chronically underfunded and under-resourced, they don't have that. So you might have it that actually, as I said, if you've got a paramedic that's had a particularly difficult set of shifts and you meet them on their fifth shift and they're burnt out, they've had an awful set, really upsetting. They haven't really talked to anyone because they haven't had time. And then you need them to be empathetic and compassionate and they could be quite short and bad tempered. And obviously then you think, oh, well, I don't like our local ambulance service then because I didn't receive good patient care. So then the complaints come in. And so it really is a vicious cycle, which is what I try and talk to the organisation about and say, you know, we really do need to be discussing compassion fatigue, burnout, emotional labour, because it really does 
impact the community and on the flip side it can benefit the community if we get it right in the organizations so far on the website you've had some really powerful articles from emergency service workers and police officers and other men from all walks of life the article that the detective sergeant wrote for you anonymously about losing his infant son just floored me which article have you been most proud of in hosting on it i think that one mainly because i've come to know dad and it took several months of getting to know him. He would tell me that he had a story, but he wasn't ready to share. And, and that's his prerogative. I never pushed him. And one day he did share with me the story of William. And as you said, it floored me as well. And I, I remember just being in tears with it, mainly because it's incredibly sad, but also I knew the strength it took him to share that. And... You know, I, I, as I said, I continue to get to know dad over the years. And, and when I set up for our men as, as a website, I offered him the opportunity to write about William if he wanted to, never expecting that he would. He's, a, he's an intensely private man, which I understand. And when he did that for me, it was beautiful to read. You know, he'd got his family involved to help him write it. And I think knowing on a personal level how much that took for him to write that makes me proud of him for writing about it and for wanting to share it with others so I think you know I'm, I'm proud of all of them to host all of them because all of them all the articles give different perspectives and it's men sharing their vulnerability and I suppose you know for me I I understand how difficult it is for some men to share their vulnerability so to have the honour of being able to share William's story was an incredible moment purely because I knew what it took for dad to write it but I felt it was beautiful because he was ready to share William with the world. Going back to what you said on how people need to understand the different stigmas or the different strands of men's mental health, doing work in it for as long as you have Tony, what have you learned about those issues that perhaps female listeners might be able to glean and help or used to help the men in their life? Uh, for me, the biggest thing I've learned in working in this sphere is that it takes time. I always say that for men, it takes far, far longer for them to trust anyone to discuss their feelings or, or thoughts. So it can sometimes take me months, weeks and months to get a man to open up to me, even if they've initially said, oh, I'm struggling. So I think, you know, with women, we are constantly nurtured to build those strong support networks and self-reflect on our feelings and analyze our feelings and articulate them and seek support for them. Whereas men are the opposite on the whole. They have very small support networks. They don't really discuss feelings. Even if they do have mates, they might minimize their feelings because they're still worried about being judged and shamed. So I think for me, I've realized how much time and how much you have to invest in yourself to get a response, but also that you, have to recognize that once you have a man's vulnerability you need to be very careful with it and by that i mean that even when they might disclose certain things about how they're feeling it's constantly reassuring them that i'm not going to judge and shame them for whatever they tell me i'm not going to leave them despite what they'll tell me so i think there is a real lack of understanding of how much reassurance men need to actually speak and that the biggest issue is not when they first ask for help it's it's the after it's making sure that you constantly show up 
and you don't leave them because they're very afraid that you will and, and that you'll judge and shame them. So for me, I think people don't realise that male mental health is very, very different to women's in how it can present. If we think, for example, you know, if a woman is struggling, perhaps we will have shopping or food, you know, emotional eating or things like that. And on the whole, you know, on a male side, you might have that they go super into their fitness or they might, you know, which can be self-harm after a while, or they might start drinking. So, and those are very stereotypical examples, but if you think about just those opposites, so we do need to recognise that male mental health is very different, which is probably the bit I spend most of my time campaigning around. And for you personally, doing For Our Men, what have you learned about yourself, do you think? That I'm very male, (laughs) which sounds funny when I say... I've got hip length blonde hair and I love pink and sparkly things and makeup, but I've always had a very male mindset. So I think for me, I've realized that one of the key reasons I'm able to help so many and I understand it is because actually I'm talking about myself, which I think is really important. But also I've realized that this is absolutely my life's work. And I knew I was onto something before I came into police and I knew I wanted to kind of push it forward. But coming into police and emergency services as a a whole and seeing the need has just made me realise this is absolutely what I want to do with my life. You have done so much incredible work, like you said. Have you ever taken a step back and realised how much of an impact you've had on people? No. (laughs) No, because I think the last few years have been so so complex in terms of there's been so much trauma I've had to survive simultaneously to doing all my work with men that I just constantly keep pushing myself forward because that's what I need to do and that's also a trauma response and and so there's multifaceted reasons but I think sometimes every now and then I think oh shit I did that you know sometimes when I explain how busy my life is to other people and how much I do and then they look at me going how do you have a full-time job and all this every now and then I think yeah okay I actually did that and I have to pinch myself a little bit and think yes I did present to the Royal Marines and yes I launched this website and yes I wrote a book and I'm writing another book and every now and then I think when a man thanks me for the support that's those are the little boosts that just remind me that actually even aside from all that you know when they credit me with changing or saving their lives. Those are my biggest achievements to just know that I am a positive influence in their lives. And just finally, Tony, what do you hope to achieve with Four Men in the future and where can people find it on social media and your website? Yeah, so the website is called fourrmen.com and I've got a Twitter feed of the same name. I haven't started any other social media yet because I'm one person with a day job and a whole host of other things so that will be the next step it has a Facebook page too but which I opened purely to get the name but I haven't done anything with it so for me this year it's about getting more articles written by men it's about pushing it forward on social media I'm hoping to become a community interest company which means that I can apply for grants and receive charitable funds once I do that I'll then start opening up coaching for men around their mental and emotional health. For me, the sky's the limit with four men. I think, you know, now now I've got the confidence, now I'm far enough away from my trauma, I've got the clear sort of mind to, you know, have national plans for it and what I want to do. And I'm about to launch a men's virtual cuppa once a week for men only in the emergency services. So I'm really starting to push forward with my work. And yeah, I think, watch out, baby, we're going to go national. (laughs) 
We have come to the final topic of this two-part episode, Tony, which is our mental health chat, which I try and have with every guest. So firstly, and you can definitely include the circumstances worldwide or maybe even the ones that have took place at this time of week of recording, but how would you say your mental health is at the moment? I think on the whole, good. I mean, I think this for me, the start of the year wasn't great. I went into a really deep depressive episode and I do have chronic depression. But I think the last few years, because I've been led by trauma, I sort of forgot I had depression, which sounds really weird. And so when I just sunk into it for lots of different reasons, I forgot what that severe debilitating depression's like. And then I became unwell with COVID. And even though I was only mildly symptomatic, I've been left with quite bad brain fog and fatigue and that doesn't help major depression and chronic fatigue are not good friends so i've discovered but i feel like they're both starting to lift and even though this week has been a difficult one for trauma i would say on the whole i'm probably the best i have been in a while which i'm thankful for what age do you think you were when you first realized or became self-aware that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health Pretty much, I think, when we were talking about in part one, when I was about 13, I don't remember many of the years. I just remember that feeling of waking up and just knowing something wasn't right. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew it wasn't normal. And I think at that time, again, nobody really discussed child mental health or adolescent mental health. I think even in my years, it's got much, much better at normalising the conversation around it and I normalize it all the time I just drop it into conversation and I say oh yeah I'm in therapy because I don't really care what you think of me I know why I'm in therapy and actually I think people in therapy are some of the strongest you know because it's not until you go into therapy and you realize how much of your own shit you have to face that you realize actually it's not a comfortable thing at all and you go oh this is why the majority of people don't go into therapy and so I think, yeah, just I've been more unwell than I have been well in my life. But that has helped me in many ways to be empathetic. And and my lived experience does nothing but help the people that I support because they know that they can relate. We've talked a lot about your triggers already, Tony. But one thing we haven't discussed yet are nightmares or night terrors. And this is something that I struggled with quite a lot when I was starting to address my PTSD. And it's something I believe you've had lived experience of too. How have they affected your mental health? They are not fun. I don't remember it, but when I was about eight or nine, apparently I had quite bad night terrors. And actually I can remember being in my bed and waking up and and shouting for my mum to come in. And nobody really knows why in children that you have night terrors, but they just know that you tend to grow out of them. And since my rape, so it's been over three years now and I've never slept through the night since. And I can cope with that to a point. I've got into a routine where I think, okay, I know I'm going to get maybe three hours. And then after that first three hours, I'm going to start waking up continually until I'm I'm ready. And, And unfortunately, it's amazing what your body and mind can get used to. But I think sometimes I have noticed now that if I am particularly anxious about something in my conscious world, then my nightmares and terrors increase. And I don't remember night terrors for anyone that doesn't know is is a mix between nightmares and sleepwalking. So I'll wake up and I can be screaming or 
choking on tears, breathless, absolutely sobbing, and I've got no idea why. And I think on those days, I always feel very defeated because I think, you know, in so many ways, I've come so far from that night and I've done, you know, I've put in all the work. I've done two and a half years of therapy. I've done everything they tell you, you quote, should. And he's still in my head. And that's a really difficult thing I have to accept. So I think as much as I've got used to having nightmares and used to not sleeping, the days that I have night terrors are always the days where I feel my most broken, where I still feel that he's in my head and my body, which is very, very hard. But I think talking about it on Twitter, for example, because that's the only platform I use, it allows me to normalise it. And actually a lot of people go through the same thing for, for whatever reason. So actually it's nice to know that despite how I'm feeling, other people can relate, which makes me feel a little bit less alone. And when it comes to tools and methods you use in your own life to improve your mental health, Tony, or help you feel better, what have they been and which ones have you found that have worked? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Well, I often joke I'm like a walking NHS leaflet for things to do with your mental health, which is why I get a bit pissy when people try and give me advice um, because I think I've been there for years love like I know what I'm doing for me I think it's a wide range of things but actually the biggest thing is that I listen to myself which a lot of people don't so I know that there are days where I can feel like absolute shite but I know I can push through to do something I can push myself to go for a run or I can go and see a friend. And then there's other days where I just have to recognise that actually I don't want to see anyone today or maybe I can have a phone call instead of meeting someone because that's what I can handle. So I think my years, as I said, you know, I've spent more of my life unwell than I have healthy with my mental health has actually allowed me to be self-aware and and just change my boundaries every day and go, okay, well, I'm going to do this and maybe not do that, which... I think a lot of the time we give blanket advice and say, oh, you should go for a run. Whereas I know that running does jack shit to help my depression. But if I'm anxious, it does because I get to burn off the anxious energy. So it's just even subtle things like that that I recognise that some people won't necessarily be aware of. I do speak to my friends a lot. So I, I have a rule that I won't cancel on friends. You know, just I can be in the depths of depression, but I won't cancel seeing my friends but I might message them and just say heads up really not a good day but if you're still happy then I'd still like to meet so that way their expectations are lower the pressure's off a little bit but you've still got that social connection and I do a whole host of things you know I, I write both online about my work and and I journal I speak to friends but actually the biggest thing that helps is supporting others and I don't do that to the detriment of my own mental health as I said I, I'm very good at my boundaries at going oh I can't do this today but for me helping others and leaving them a little bit lighter makes me feel a little bit lighter so it's very individual and I think it's unfortunately years of trial and error that work out what works for you I for example a lot of people when they see how busy I am and I say god I'm just exhausted with this week for example and they say oh you need to rest no I can't rest, you know, I'm, I, if I stop too much, it does the opposite and I sit there and think, so I know that other people's rest is not my version of rest. And I think we need to get a little bit better at pushing back on those blanket advice 
pieces um, and say, well, actually, I appreciate what you're saying, but rest, it looks different. And, and the classic, particularly at the moment, is just don't be on your phone, you know, don't be on social media because it's really toxic and blah, blah, blah. And I, I get in principle what they're saying. And as we've discussed off air, I have needed to back off Twitter this week for lots of reasons. But at the same time, it's a place that I need to use to improve my mental health. It makes me feel connected. It's full of friends. We do have to be careful when we blanket tell people what to do around their mental health because it's different for everyone. We've talked already about toxic masculinity, Tony. I also talk a lot about positive masculinity on this pod and hopefully... Maybe I'm a bit naive, maybe I'm optimistic. In a few more years, masculinity will just be positive masculinity. How would you define positive masculinity? And what qualities should a man have to exude to be described as positively masculine? For example, some guests have said it's self-confidence, empathy, supporting others, self-awareness. What can you tell me here? I think for me, positive masculinity is whatever you need it to be. I very much view it as... As long as it's not harmful to yourself and to others, it's positive. Doesn't always mean that it will be received that way, but I very much view it as masculinity is what you need it to be. And we talk a lot about real men, quote, in the media. And and I, I do find, which I, I sort of cringe a little bit when I see campaigns for men's mental health and they see real men talk and I think okay but real men might not also want to talk you know there's there's a real issue that we have around language and linguistics and I think at the moment for me the reason why we've got such discussion around toxic masculinity is because it's not the fact that masculinity is in crisis which is what you'll talk a lot about that toxic masculinity is an extreme and it's born out from this crisis of masculinity at the moment I personally don't believe masculinity is in crisis. I believe the definition of it is changing. We've gone from this very traditional masculine role of, you know, the men were minors and the tradies and the wife, you know, is the home care person and, and all this. And so I think we are shifting away from that. And so men are in this weird space at the moment where they don't quite know their roles because any role is up for grabs. You know, most roles are up for grabs these days. And I say, I don't have an issue with traditional masculinity, but like anything, it's when you take certain behaviours or issues to the extreme that it can become harmful for yourself and other people. So for me, if you feel masculine when you're covered in glitter and you're going to Glastonbury and you've got on budgie smugglers, crack on. Similarly, if you are that man who is a construction worker, is the breadwinner, your wife stays at home and you've got kids and that works for all involved, then that's positive. So I think it really is a very subjective interpretation. But for me, I think just being a good person counts. I really enjoyed that answer, Tony, and there's no right or wrong answer to those questions. So I really appreciate your nuanced take on it. As a final question, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to do it? Oh, goodness, that's a loaded question. I think this past week in the media has shown that despite all the awareness we've got, it means fuck all because I've seen so much mudslinging and awful, awful opinions from people that have a responsibility to public platforms 
And for me, it just feels as though whatever many of us say that needs to change, it's not actually changing. I think that the biggest thing we need to do is appropriately fund mental health services. My biggest issue is telling anyone broadly saying that people need to reach out. And I have a real issue with that because a if they reach out, there's a lot of non-empathetic professionals and and we come back to compassion fatigue right so if you've got a doctor who's looking at his clock thinking right every appointment is eight minutes long and we're at seven and a half minutes and i i don't really know the issue yet you know everybody's on a clock everybody's on a budgeted clock right so if you reach out and that's your first response you're probably not going to talk to someone again so i think as much as I would say, and I would encourage people to reach out. For me, it's about reaching in. It's about actually going, you don't look okay, or you don't sound okay, or just, I'm just checking in because you're my mate and I haven't heard from you for a week, what's going on? So for me, it's it's the opposite. I would ask people to start getting comfortable with the uncomfortable conversations, because if you, again, if you tell people to reach out and they go on a wait list for six, 12 months, Okay, so what are you going to do in those six to 12 months? Because you could lose them to suicide in that point or whatever, you know, personal circumstance might happen to them that's negative. So for me, it's reaching in and it's about teaching people how to have those uncomfortable conversations and do them discreetly because, you know, we've come a long, long way, but we're still not at the point of being able to discuss it openly without consequence. We can discuss it openly and we're getting far better at normalising the conversation. And in normalising, I'll just drop in the conversation, oh, I'm in therapy and somebody will say, oh, I've been in therapy for a while. And and it, it does work. That ripple effect of normalising the conversation does work. But unfortunately, we still have, you know, media that are printing the methods of suicide and using the words commit suicide, even though, you know, it stopped being a crime by the 1961 Suicide Act. You know, it's all these things that contribute to people not speaking up. So I would say reach in start reaching in and if you don't know what to say just say that say i don't know what to say but i'm here for you and and often that's all that's needed thanks for listening to part two of ella brooks story if you have listened to both parts of this story thank you so much tony has helped so many people in her life including me and is a beacon of hope inspiration and very much proof that even in the darkest of moments when you feel like all hope is gone with the right support you can find a way through and turn the biggest of negatives into a positive. I'll put a link to where you can buy Ella's book in the show notes, follow For Our Men on social media, and where you can follow her on Twitter. If you like what we're doing at Vent, please do consider supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Every penny really does count. Or give the Just Checking In podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. <laughs>